0: Good morning. We've been studying the book of Philippians, which I think is a powerful book, and every Christian needs to know it and know it well as we understand what Paul understood about what it is to rise above the victim mentality. And I want to just really look at another passage that speaks very decisively to how we need each other in times of adversity and hardship. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your presence and we ask you would speak to us today, that we would uh, see the relationship with, between Paul and Timothy and Epaphrodites, that we might get a glimpse of what that relationship should look like that encourages us and builds us up at times of need, especially in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, at every church that I've ever pastored, uh, there have been at least one or two people that I wish I could just take whenever I moved on. You kind of think, man, that guy would just be a guy that if I could bring him along with me when I move. And unfortunately, they won't, they're they not willing to do that. They, For some reason, they want to stay with wife and their family and their kids and their job, so they choose not to come with me. But that's all right, I understand, kind of, I guess. And I've been a solo pastor, a senior pastor for over 40 years now, and I've worked with many different lay leaders, and some of them really stand out. And I could give you a long list, but I'll just list a few. My first church in Oregon, there was a man named Rick who had had a great heart for God. He was a comptroller for a major grocery chain in Salem, Oregon. And Rick was one of these guys who loved the Lord and had the same passion to build God's church and teach the Word of God and to see others come to Christ. And we just had a, a common heart with each other because of those things. And we could talk about the Lord and the direction of the church freely and and throw out different ideas and even had some good, healthy debates. And when I left that church, I kind of wish he could come along with me. Obviously, he didn't. In another church that I served at for 10 years, there were around five people whom I would love to have taken with me because of their passion for ministry and the gifts they brought to it. And one in particular was a man named Dave Hagee. Now, Dave had been a colonel in the Air Force, and he was used to leading men. He had trained lots of pilots on the what was then called the F-4. He was a man fully committed to Christ, and I always knew Dave would respect and support me. He always had my back. And when he disagreed with me, he always made his opinion very clear, but he never undermined me in any way, and he would come to me to speak with me directly about it, and he had always had good insights. He was a strong man with a natural ability to lead, and we shared a mutual respect for each other. Now, there are people in other churches, her ministry partners, who share my heart and passion for building God's kingdom. And these people are not yes men, but people who can provide a meaningful contribution to the church by their spiritual depth and their commitment. The major trait that is common to all these people is that while they may be strong in the Lord, they're also humble without being self degrading. Instead of being focused and obsessed with their own needs and agendas, they're identified by how they look out for the interests of Christ in the interest of others they're people who are sensitive to the spiritual development of others and are positive hopeful about the work of the Lord I feel very fortunate to have these kind of people in my other people that are here as well they're a lifeline for me and are invaluable in the work of Christ instead of demanding and draining of emotional and spiritual resources they're a constant source of encouragement I'm convinced every church and every pastor needs these kind of people The church cannot move forward without them, and without them the church is filled with bickering and lack of vision and lack of hope. We've been studying the book of Philippians, written by Paul while he was in prison, having been placed there unfairly, arrested for proclaiming the gospel. And we learn that he was able to have joy despite his circumstances. He goes against the norm. This morning, we're going to look at two men who are Paul's ministry partners who provided for him considerable encouragement during this time. And I want to observe what Paul says about these men and learn what qualities they shared that helped him rise above this victim status that so many people live under. So let's look at five qualities that answer the question, what qualities make a good ministry partner? And the first one is this. They have a genuine interest in the welfare of others. Philippians two nineteen says this: "I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Now Paul could identify a few who share his ministry and motive, many were in ministry for their own motives. They get their own strokes met by doing ministry where Timothy had the same heart. He was compassionate for others. And the problem with this other mindset, though, that he often came against, it becomes evident during the hard times. The people that are not motivated with the right motives, they bail. If ministry is to provide for your interest, then it will be evident when the hard times come, and they're going to be the first ones to leave or criticize you or undermine you because they have their own self-interests. one of the greatest challenges of finding a good ministry partner is finding someone who has a true interest in others if a person is in ministry to stroke his own ego or to receive the applause of others he's not going to make it in fact less than 20 out of every 100 people who start full-time ministry will make it to retirement you hear that Less than 20 people who start in ministry are going to make it to retirement. Many good men leave through no fault of their own sometimes, but many who do leave because they're trying to please people, and they do not handle criticism and conflict very well. Sometimes ministry can be brutal, and they don't know how to face it. And there can be a lot of politics in ministry, and if a person is in it for themselves, they're not going to survive. If you work under the false assumption that if you are sincere and nice and everyone will be supportive, then you're setting yourself up for disappointment. And yet, that's the kind of people we need. People that can handle the criticism, that people that can face it, and realize that they're in ministry not for their own ego, but for others. And a good ministry partner who's one who looks out for the interest of others without sacrificing his own well-being. Second response to our question, what qualities make a good ministry partner? It's this, they have a genuine interest in Christ. Not just for others, but also Christ. Look what Paul says in verse 21, for everyone looks out for his own interest, but not those of Christ Jesus. You know, there must come a period in life of every person a believer regarding what his life is going to be about. Will it be about him, himself, or will it be about God? Every believer is going to have that time. You're going to face a time of life where you're just going to have to ask the question, what is my life about? Notice the association between looking out for the interests of others and having a genuine interest in Christ. Because we are Christ's church, when we look out for his church, we look out for Christ. Remember Christ's words to Paul when he called him to the road to Damascus. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And goes, what do you mean am I persecuting you? He said, when you persecute my church, you're persecuting me because we're connected. One of the hardest things to get through people's head is life is not about you. That is the great deception. In his book, The Purpose Driven Life, that point is driven home. Rick Warren says, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dream and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. You were made by God and for God and until you understand that life will never make sense and that is why so many people they constantly struggle with depression and hopelessness is because it's not about you it's about God loving him and serving him and knowing him and growing in him that's what Timothy shared not only did he love for others but his love for Christ But there's a third response to her question, what qualities make a good ministry partner, is that they serve in a supportive role. He goes on and says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. You see, Paul was the key catalyst in Timothy's conversion. We find that later. Timothy was a Jew with mixed parentage. His father was Gentile. His mother was a Jew. His grandmother trained him in scriptures throughout his whole life. And when Paul came to Ephesus, Timothy was one of his early converts. He spent a lot of time training and mentoring him. He learned that Christ was the Messiah and was the fulfillment of the law that he had been familiar with all his life. Timothy became like a son to Paul. His name is mentioned often in scripture. In fact, there are two books in scripture that are written directly to him to teach him and to console him and to encourage him. First Timothy and Second Timothy. Timothy was a person Paul trusted so much that he was willing to delegate a very important task to him. He was going to send Timothy to Philippi, this very church that, that he is writing to. It's one of Paul's daughter churches that he planned, that he loved, that he invested great attention to. And in delegating this task, he is following God's model. Paul trusted him enough that he's willing to delegate the role of sending them on. In fact, on the topic of delegation, C.S. Lewis once said this, he, referring to God, he seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to all his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. Creation seems to be delegation through and through, and I suppose this is because he's a giver. Paul understood that principle. Just as God delegates, God doesn't come and fix everything that you do. He doesn't come and micromanage everything you do in your life. He gives you the freedom. He wants you to grow. He wants you to nurture, mature. And in a sense, that's what Paul is doing with Timothy. He's sending him to Philippi and say, Timothy, go, encourage, and build up this church. He trusts him to do that. And Timothy made a good ministry partner, not only been knowledgeable, but he was teachable. A good ministry partner is one who can participate in leadership as a team member. He can share and support the shared vision. Good ministries partners support each other and you feel the freedom to delegate and you know they will not undermine the church or the leadership of it. There's this fourth response to a question, what qualities make a good ministry partner? And that is this, that they are trustworthy enough to act as a representative. Notice verse 23. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident the Lord that I myself will come soon. Meaning he's sending him on early, and he represents me. There are few who Paul could trust well enough to represent him. He wanted to come himself, but he's in prison. Couldn't get there. But he could release Timothy until he was able to come himself. Timothy was obedient to Paul because they were soulmates, his co-servants, and they had the same mission, the same heart. They were ministry partners who acted as a team, and they trusted each other. Paul could and did take Timothy with him in earlier ministries and sent him to various churches. This wasn't the only one. He was one whose motives were good. He could be trusted. What we know is this. That churches need more of these kind of people. I can remember a story from seminary professor Howard Hendricks. If you're older, you might remember that name. He was well-known in earlier days, and and he was teaching a Christian education seminar, and an old lady in her 80s came up to him after the seminar and asked him a few questions regarding leading her high school group and what she could do to improve it and make it better. And, and uh, Howard Hendricks assumed she had being 80 years old, that she would have maybe a small group of four or five young interested kids who just had to come to Sunday school because their parents made them come. And so he was just assuming he'll just give his deep, meaningful professor insights to her and and uh, all would be good. And as she asked more questions, he realized she knew what she was talking about. She asked about how she can do her class and she understood what was involved. So he asked the question, well tell me about your Sunday school class what's going on here and she said that she had around 100 kids meeting with numerous connections throughout the week most were for um church backgrounds and most were new believers who were later baptized and she had this powerful dynamic ministry at 80 years old Howard Hendricks it's in his book Say It With Love if you ever want to read the story it's quite fascinating Hendricks concludes his discussion by saying you're the one needs to be teaching me she was able to be one of those faithful ministry partners and had a heart, she was teachable and yet she had a heart for these kids think about it, a hundred junior high kids it's like herding cats how do you do that? it's remarkable we need more people like this lady we need people who selflessly minister to others the gospel of Jesus Christ we need trustworthy people there's a final response to our question, and it is this. These are people who take risks for the work of Christ and others. Keyword there is risk. Notice what it says in Philippians 2.25, because now Paul is going to introduce another rather interesting man. Look what he says. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphrodites, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill indeed he was ill and almost died but god had mercy on him and not on him only but also me to spare my sorrow upon sorrow therefore i am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again you may be glad and i may have less anxiety welcome in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me wow what a note of respect let's take a look at this guy a little bit who is this Epaphroditus Epaphroditus is the second man Paul identifies as a good ministry partner Epaphroditus was not trained like Timothy was he was a layman so to speak who made time to help Paul out. He had become ill as a result of his ministry to Paul to the point of his life being threatened. He risked his life to minister to Paul. This had an impact on Paul. and He was praised highly by him who recognized him as a brother, as a ministry partner, and as a fellow soldier. Paul was sending him back because he longed for the Philippians and they were worried because he had been deathly sick. His death would have brought great sorrow while his life brought great relief they did not need an extra concern in that Paul himself was in prison an uncertain future there were uncertain times or unclear times so to have lost Epaphrodites would just add to their uncertainty and difficulty and his return was to reduce their anxiety and to honor him for his selfless act of service Paul mentions again Epaphrodites near the close of this letter and he says this I have received full payment acknowledge you received the money the church had sent and have more than enough I am amply supplied now I have received from Epaphrodites the gifts you sent me they are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God and the very next verse that's often quoted in scripture and every believer needs to know it it says this and my God will supply all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus it's all tied to Epaphrodites and bringing of the gift interesting enough who is this Epaphrodites guy his name is of pagan origin and he had a, obviously had a pagan background the name of Epaphrodites means a, a belonging to Epaphrodite the name of the goddess the goddess who is the goddess of sex and lux and eros and his name is part of that And such is the power of the gospel that a man is set free from dead paganism to serve the living God and when Epaphrodites received the gospel he was belonging to Jesus as Paul says here and the idol no more had a claim on him the worship of Epaphrodites no longer was part of who he was regardless of his name the new birth trumped his birth name and when a man like Epaphrodites gives of himself for the sake of God's kingdom many people benefit and such a man is worthy of honor in his presence and his cause for rejoicing We need more men like Epaphrodites, who as laymen will risk their lives for the work of Christ, who will step out of their previous way of life and take on the new life of the gospel. He became like Timothy of putting aside his own interests and well-being for the interests of others. And we need more of such people. But here's what's noteworthy about Epaphrodites in my mind. is that he had been a pagan before coming to Christ, and becoming a minister partner with Paul We need to grasp the implications of this Before his conversion Paul had been a staunch Pharisee Who would despise Gentiles Much less pagan ones So Paul himself was on the extreme side Of Phariseeism Before his conversion That's revealed in Acts chapter 9 And yet in these few short months Paphrodites Became a ministry partner Serving the same cause expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ do you see what happens do you see the power of the gospel it can take people from extreme ends of the spectrum with a string different backgrounds and he can bring them together and they share a common mission a common vision and a common goal even if that goal involves considerable risk we're willing to make the sacrifice and in today's world we need that kind of commitment The Institute for Jewish and Community Research surveyed 1,200 professors from a cross-section of colleges seeking their attitudes toward various religions. And the research was originally aimed at gauging anti-Semitism, but something else was discovered. The professors stated that they had positive feelings toward Jews and Catholics, but 53% said they possessed unfavorable feelings toward students who were evangelical Christians. And in his article, Why Christians Feel Unwelcome on Campus, David French offers his own conclusions on the matter. He says, For evangelicals, it came through loud and clear. The academic establishment has long stories about bias against Christians as mere antidotes, but now we see concrete evidence of sheer bigotry. Our colleges clearly have a religion problem, and faithful students and professors are paying the price. Meaning this, we are living in an environment Of which believing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the heart and the essence of what every person needs to know, it is not being received among those circles. My point is this there's still a risk involved in preaching Christ to those who have a bias against it. Paul is familiar with that. And we should not be surprised if we face it too. We need people who are willing to take a risk. In our community, we have around 7% evangelical believers. There's a risk in trying to build a church here because there are a lot of people who don't know Christ and there is even another element who is resistant and hostile toward it. But we see our role in reaching people in the community in two lights. Number one, let me give you an illustration to see what our task might involve. Two salesmen were sent to sell shoes in a remote part of Africa. And one man writes back in defeat, why did you send me here? It's hopeless. No one wears shoes here. The second salesman comes back, and he says, thanks for sending me here. What a wonderful opportunity. No one wears shoes here. That's how we need to look at our role as First Baptist Church, that we are called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what? There are a lot of people who don't believe the gospel or don't even know what the gospel is. And if we want to deal with the problem systemic to our culture and our society, we have to understand that at its core, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that which transforms. This morning, we looked at two men who were Paul's ministry partners who provided him considerable encouragement during his difficult times where he was facing persecution. And we learned what united them was a shared faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel is the, is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1, verse 16. We need people who are not here for themselves, but for Christ. If you've been saved over five years, you should be serving. You should be looking out for the interest of others. And part of being a Christian is sacrifice and servanthood. That's what Christ modeled, and that's what these two men modeled. Our shared vision unites us regardless of race or background. In our study of the book of Philippians, we've been focusing on rising above the victim culture, and I cannot think of a more appropriate time for this book to be taught. The victim culture traps us into a narrative that says we're victims due to our circumstances, whether it be race or gender or whatever it may be, and in that culture, there's no place for forgetting there's no place for forgiveness. There's a never a path to reconciliation. The injustice will always be held against it. And no matter what you do to recompense it and address it, it will always be held against you. History will always be dug up. And the offender is often not just a person, but it's a group. As a victim, one feels fully justified in whatever they do in their response, no matter how severe, because I'm the victim, and I can do whatever I want, and annihilation is the preferred outcome in that culture. The murder of George Floyd and the following destruction over the past days or weeks proves that very point. The victim culture has led to dehumanizing lies that pit black against white, rich against poor, mothers against their babies. It's a hellish time. Forces are loose fit in our streets, uh, and our hearts that recall Dovskieski's brilliant and prophetic novel, The Possessed. You've never read The Possessed. It's like you're reading what's happening right now when you read that book. That profound Christian author saw what comes when our souls are in disorder and we live far from God and where Christ is not part of our, in our hearts. We live as walking wounded. We're vulnerable to passions of the moment, to mindless tribal divisions, but most of all to pseudo-intellectual action plans or ideologies. The kind of gibberish you hear online from Antifa or white nationalists. In the past weeks, I see firsthand re- history repeating itself over and over again. And the younger generations repeating the same errors and thinking that as though they have discovered something new and something progressive and something more virtuous, as though this has never been discussed before. We've never addressed these issues before. We soon see a new rise in socialism, only it has taken on a new form of, uh, of oppression and oppressed. But the two sides of the conflict this time is framed as racist and the pure. I know this debate, guys. It's been going on for 50 years, and nothing's changed. As a young man living in the Bay Area of San Francisco, I saw something very similar. From part of my early years, I grew up in a black neighborhood in Stanage Avenue in Berkeley, California. My friends were all black. I still know some of them. I was present a few times when riots formed the stairs of the UC Berkeley campus when looting on Telegraph Avenue across the street, and I saw the crowd get worked up into a frenzy. And grow across and just destroy the glass in the buildings. I remember driving by Hayton Asbury on several occasions in the heyday of the hippie movement, the rebellion against authority, and the place reeked of marijuana, and everything was in a state of dissolution. I remember driving by Watts shortly after the riots that destroyed the city, and then later it was followed by Rodney King with another riot. It's all the same mindless herd mentality and the proposed solution is always the same. Pit one against the other. Hate the perceived racist, the establishment and authority. It's a cycle that keeps repeating itself and I'm convinced we'll continue to realize that the problem is in us as individuals, not some force outside of ourselves. We're not going to fix the problem by keep categorizing these two camps of oppressed versus oppressor is that not a solution if it were the last 50 years would have seen a cure by now it only intensifies it's a heart issue it's a spiritual issue God has to change hearts from both the victim and the oppressor and sometimes that isn't even the real issue in fact I would go far and say this the problem that's happening right now is not a racial issue. It's much deeper, more complex than that. I would go so far as to say this, if I was to identify one singular problem, it's the fatherness, it's the breakdown of the nuclear family. It is the movement from God that's the problem. The nuclear family in the black communities have been destroyed, it's ruined. 83% of all black boys are raised in single-parent homes. I've got two books that make the case, Fatherless in America by David Blankenhorn and Life Without Fathers by uh, David Popeno, they talk about that issue of, of how it has devastated the black community and the rebelliousness and the lack of authority because fathers are absent. And You can get all the reasons why and all, that's, all that goes with it, but it's so much more complex than just racism as though that is the issue. In fact, I would say it's, it's even low on the list of what I think the problems to be. You see, Jesus and Paul we're both victims who got the short end of the deal at least from a human perspective but not from a divine perspective. They both rose above their circumstances by seeing things from the eyes of eternity and a shared purpose bigger than their daily battles, bigger than their daily issues. Paul saw that, and he had some key men who shared this vision to share the one thing that can change hearts, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by golly, within centuries, Christianity spread and began to transform the world around them. And I don't think anything's changed. We still need the gospel of Jesus Christ to change and transform hearts. And let's start trying to fix a problem with a totally wrong solution. We go and we protest, and that's good. It was an injustice. Nobody's disputing that. Everybody agrees that the murder and the videos of George Floyd was an awful, horrible, terrible thing. But what's that have to do with writing and destroying when we need to find out what the real problem is? What about the homes, the family? What about God? are ignoring all those issues we need to rise above that